0: I welcome each one of you to our celebration service today. I had an opportunity last week to be up with some guys up at a guy's retreat. And we were able to, well, sing praises to God in an environment that's a little bit different. We had 160, 170 guys up there and praising God and and hearing from God and, and challenging us and reminding us over and over of how worthy we are to our God. So I came back full, encouraged, opportunities we had to connect with other guys, but, but mostly to be able to connect with God. I'd also like to just say thank you to Gary. Gary, are you here? Gary, (laughs) how silly of me not to see you, Gary. But how what a blessing that we have to have men here who know God and love his word and teach from their hearts. So Gary, I appreciate your heart and and taking the pulpit here and sharing God's word. We start a new series today, a brand new series, and, and we're going to camp out in Exodus 14 for a few weeks. Let me try to give you just a little bit of background. The Jews, God's chosen people, they were in a really, really good spot in Genesis 50, Now, Genesis is the first book. Chapter 50 is the last chapter. It's right before we're going to enter into the book of Exodus. And at this place, if you just even know a little bit about Scripture, you're going to find out they were in a sweet spot. There was a universal famine in the world. But there was a guy named Joseph. And Joseph listened to God and walked with God. And he, would, he became part of Pharaoh's court and was a leader in Pharaoh's and in Egypt. And he was able to hear God and be able to plan ahead. So in Egypt, there was plenty of food. It just so happens is that Joseph and his family, they needed that food. And Joseph sent for his family basically about a little over 70 people. That's a pretty large family. And had them settle in the special and best place in Egypt. So that's really how Genesis 50 ends. They're in a good spot. They're enjoying life. They have food. They are growing and multiplying. But I also want to say this. The next book, the next chapter, the Jews are in a bad spot. Let me just read for for you from Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to start at verse 6. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. For their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land back in Egypt. Eventually, a new king or a pharaoh came into power who knew nothing about Joseph. Or what he had done. <laughs> it, that wasn't bad, because again, at least at that moment, okay, I just don't know how we got to this amazing, powerful place. We own so much property. There are so many good things that are happening, and and they forgot it was because of Joseph's leadership. But all he saw was this group of Jews growing and multiplying and becoming more powerful. And what he did is begin to enslave them. He was worried. He didn't want to be overrun by this people group. He needed control over them. So in just moments, they lived wonderfully, beautifully, having all of their supplies met. And now they become slaves. (laughs) Life deteriorated quickly at this moment. And this is where we're going to begin our story. But let me pray first, and then we'll open up the scriptures. Father, I come before you, and I recognize that we come into this place through these doors in so many places in our life. We're experiencing stress. Some are in a really sweet spot and experiencing joy. But most of us, God, we alternate, we wonder, we question, we look at our world. Some of us are in a bad spot, in a hard spot, and we wonder if we're ever going to get out. We look at our kids and our grandkids. We look at the job situation. We look at politics. We look at health and disease. And, and Lord, we feel so helpless God, we pray that today you would meet us where we're at, that we would understand who you are and that you love us and care for us and want to walk with us in life. Oh, God, we are so grateful that you care. So encourage us today with your word. Father, I pray for all of those churches that are all over the world, all over this country, in our state, to our meeting and preaching and teaching and worshiping. I pray especially, Father, for those right in our area, Meadowland and Meadows Christian Fellowship and Orchard. We pray, dear God, that these churches would honor you well and that they would encourage those in their flock. We pray, Father, for those teachers right now who are teaching our children downstairs. We ask you that you would bless them and help them understand how wonderful and gracious you are. We pray, dear God, that you would work right here among us, that your Spirit would be so very active, that we would listen to your Word and that we would leave here different people. Your Word does that for us, Lord. It changes us. It convicts us. It encourages us. It inspires us. Oh, Lord, we pray that that happens today. Lord, I would be remiss if I just thought everyone who's listening, whether online or right here in this building, knows you, have come to a place in their life that they recognize that they're separated from you by their sin. All of us are born that way, Father, but, but there are times when we understand your grace and respond. I pray, Lord, that if there was someone here right now that is not part of your family, that you would draw them today. And for all those others, Lord, that you would encourage them. We love you and pray all these things in your son's name amen amen so the Jews are in a desperate spot God raises up Moses so many of you heard Moses story or watched it on the big screen but Moses was originally the first 40 years of his life Pharaoh's son for the most part Then he didn't act very wisely, and he ran from that scenario and situation and became a shepherd for about 40 years. And it was at this time when Moses was about 80 years old that God came to him and said, hey, I've got an assignment for you. I want you to lead my people out of slavery into a promised land. So many of you know that, that Moses didn't start doing somersaults at that moment. He, he was a little bit weary and leery and wondering. I, I'm not sure I'm the right guy, but he was. Eventually, he would see God's wisdom. again. Eventually, he would become one of Israel's greatest leaders. But right from the beginning, Moses heard that it was God's plan that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened because God wanted to show up in a big way in Egypt. He wanted everybody to know how big and powerful that God was. God's plan is found in these first few chapters in the book of Exodus. But over and over and over again, you would hear him talk to Moses and say, Hey, I just want you to know, I want everyone to understand that I alone am God. And I will show them this. So the plan is birthed, you know it, by plagues. But realistically, there was the plague of blood where all the water turned into blood. And temporarily, Moses or Pharaoh was softened. But as soon as that was cleared up, He hardened his heart again. And this happens ten times. There's frogs, and there's gnats, and there's flies, and there's livestock disease, and there's boils, and there's hail, and there's locusts, and there's darkness. And eventually the ultimate, it's called Passover, where God sent an angel of death and snuffed out the life of all the firstborn. Finally, it was at this time that Pharaoh said, Okay, I've had it. I recognize. Take off. Leave. We don't want to see you anymore. So 2 million Israelites, roughly, give or take, at least 10 or 15. They're released. Can you imagine them leaving this place and heading toward what God promised them? A land that they would own and would be filled with milk and honey. Now, right during this time, God has a conversation with Moses. And he talks to him about the Passover. He talks to him how wonderful it was that God intervened. That these folks were slaves. And that because of their slavery, they were freed eventually because they put blood on doorposts. And God did not want them to forget God's power and that the blood rescued them. And so in Exodus chapter 13, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But in Exodus chapter 13, it's so unique. He said over and over and over to Moses, he said it was because of God's strong hand. It was because God intervened that he alone saved you. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. In verse 10, with a strong hand, the Lord rescued you from Egypt. In verse 14, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought you out of Egypt, the place of slavery. And in verse 16, it is a reminder that the power of God's mighty hand has brought us out of Egypt. If Moses did not understand, he certainly did at this moment. It is only because God intervened, it was only because of God's power that the children of Israel are now walking toward freedom. So the zigzag journey begins. This is desert. They didn't understand where they are going. But the scriptures tell us during the day there was a cloud that they followed. And at night there was a pillar of fire. So literally they just followed a cloud and fire. There wasn't any debate. There wasn't any discussion. This is what you do. And then we come to our text, Exodus chapter 14. And I'm going to read verse 1 and go through verse 4. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back. Change course. Encamp by Phahirith between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore, across from Baal, Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to stop at just that moment. But I, I think Moses this time is saying, God, this is a good plan? Like, whoa, whoa. okay, I'm all about following you and so on, but I thought we were done with that guy. (laughs) God said, no, no. He goes on, I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and the whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the the Israelites camped there where they were. We're told. Now I know we have a bunch of names here. And and I know it feels like, oh, we should know exactly the pathway of the Israelites. We should know where they camped. But I'm letting you know, no Bible scholar, no one really knows the pathway. These names are real, but they don't know where this is. So We don't know the route or the spot for this miracle. But actually, neither did the Jews. All they did was follow a cloud and fire. And I know that map is so hard to see, but realistically, I just wanted to share with you that there are quite a few good routes that the Israelites could have taken. We just don't know which route they did take. We do know this by reading in chapter 3 that God had a plan, but his plan was dictated by Israel's maturity. Or how about if I say this, immaturity. In other words, God literally says, hey, I'm going to take them in a roundabout way. If I take them in a direct pathway, they're going to, well, encounter enemies. And they haven't learned to trust me yet. They're going to run. They will be afraid. So I'm going to do a zigzag route. They're not going to get much competition. They're going to learn who I am and trust me first. And then they'll be able to stand up to the giants. And then they'll be able to stand up to the walled cities. I will prepare them for this. So because they were immature and they hadn't walked with God and they didn't know God very much, God put them in a roundabout pathway. And the scriptures tell us they were guided They were to camp by Faha-Irath in between Migdal, across from Baal-Sethon by the sea, which means nothing. Now here's the Israelis, though. They felt a bit odd. They did obey. They literally followed the cloud and the pillar. So if anyone could be assured they're in the right spot. They, they just are. But they looked around. The scriptures already told us that Pharaoh, when he sees this, is thinking they are trapped. So they didn't know the route, and the route seemed odd, but we know this, that when Pharaoh learns of their spot, he thinks the Jews are confused and trapped, so he chases after them. Because he soon came to his senses and said, How am I going to build the pyramids, the Sphinx, and all the other things that I love doing without the Israelites? So the Jews, they felt trapped. And it's important we understand that. But God had planned this to display his glory. The Egyptians must know that God was almighty. And God was going to use this. So God, in his opinion, led Israel to a good spot. But to the Jews, it was a bad spot. There was little hope, really no hope, no chance to escape the Red Sea before them, a difficult terrain on each side of them, and the Egyptian army behind them. And I think some of us have felt like that in our lives. We look around and and there's no hope. God, you really put me in this spot? God, how come I am here? Very interesting as we kind of look at that. But they will see soon that trusting and obeying God will give God great glory. Their perspective is going to change in just a moment. In fact, our perspective changes when we trust God and believe He is guiding us. If we think that life is just random... If we just think it's, uh, hey, good luck or bad luck that we're here, that we got this house, that we married this person, that we got this kid, that we went to that school, that we got this job. If we think, if we think that is just by luck, wow. We have a tendency to complain then. We have a tendency to moan. We have a tendency to wonder, God, what's going on? But our perspective changes when we trust God and literally believe he is guiding us. Instead of saying, get us out or get me out of this mess, God, we say, you put us here for a reason. You put me here for a reason. I can trust you. And we begin to ask, how are you going to receive glory in this, God? I don't get the cancer. I don't get the death. I don't understand why we have to move. I don't understand, and you can fill in the blank. But the truth is, is that God will get glory from our situation and our faith in him if we trust him. Now, let me remind you, God has earned the right to be trusted even when the situation looks desperate. He has never, ever failed us. And He's certainly wiser than we are. I also have to remind you that the enemy works really, really hard. He knows that lack of faith in God hamstrings the church. He wants us to trust in our own judgment, to doubt God's word and his promises. Remember, his strategy has almost been the same since the beginning of time. It happened back in the garden. When back then, he just simply said to Adam and Eve, are you sure? Did God really say this? And actually, yes, he did. But that doubt begins to creep in. Doubt and worry rob you and rob me of experiencing God. Solomon writes in Proverbs 3 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord. And you can almost stop right there, but he adds a little bit more. Don't trust your own judgment, trust in the Lord. Don't trust your judgment, and he will guide you. The Jews had every right to be worried. They had just escaped slavery for just weeks. They knew what that meant. They saw the wrath of a pharaoh. (laughs) What is the deal? God, are you sure? why are we in this situation you know as believers as those who have put their faith in Jesus those who are children of God we need to know God's promises and trust our Lord we need to go back to his word over and over and over again in spite of our situations in Romans 8 Verse 28, and we know that God causes everything, 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 everything. Everything. Everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to the purpose of them. First Peter chapter 4. The apostle writes this, it's classic. Dear friends. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if it's something strange that were happening to you. Uh, Dear friends, I, I just want you to know, the norm is fiery trials. The norm is you're standing in front of the Red Sea, the terrain's terrible, and the enemy's behind you. That is the norm. He goes on, instead... Be very glad, and bear with me, because it it seems a little odd, but therefore be very glad for these trials make you partners in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the whole world. You go through these fiery trials, so when people see you, they will have a glimpse of of what it means to have Jesus in your life. You respond differently. You act differently. There is a strength. There is a confidence. You know, there's still tears when you lose someone. There's still a broken heart when a relationship dissolves. But it is different because you have Jesus. Psalm 37, starting in verse 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their life. Don't ever think that God doesn't know what's going on in your life or in my life. He does. And He's going to work out His plan. And you are going to be part of it. And if you endure... You're going to see God magnified and glorified. How cool is that? That we get to be part of God's plan. Ooh, that's kind of exciting. I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 9. You know, as I was preparing this message, John chapter 9, um, it just hit me. I think this will help us understand God just a little better here. Because when Jesus walked the planet and he discipled or lived with his disciples and he taught them about God and he taught them how to do ministry, This is what happened. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to read the first three verses. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But this is so interesting. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who was blind or had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It is not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happens so the power of God or the glory of God might be seen in him. We're going to stop right there for a moment. But that's a great question. Basically, the disciples looked, they saw this this older man, and apparently he had the reputation, or everyone knew he had been blind since birth, and he basically just said this, hey Jesus, is this guy blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? You know, sadly, the question is still asked today. What is the reason for suffering? Well, probably the reason you're suffering is because you offended God, you sinned against God, uh, God is just wailing on you right now, or wailing on a nation or what. Now, that was the prevalent thinking back then. If you are sick, God is judging you. And really, there's so much of that same mentality today. You know, the Bible does address many reasons for evil and for suffering. Granted, one of which is rebelling against God. There there is part of that. But in our text today, Jesus addresses the false assumption that every malady is a result of God's sin. That everything that goes wrong goes south is because you're disobeying. Jesus said something that had to shock the disciples and shouldn't shock you. He said that man was born blind. So God's power would be displayed in him. So he would be glorified. That Jesus would be magnified. In other words, people would understand God's power over sickness, specifically blindness, and it would result in honor to God. This man had suffered since birth so that God would be glorified. It's hard to put our arms around that. But that's what Jesus was saying. Let's continue to read, starting at verse 6 in chapter 9. Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man that used to sit and beg? Some said it was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. And they asked him, who healed you? What happened? And the blind man told them, the man they call Jesus. He made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I see. That's my explanation. There's no other explanation. All I know is that I'm standing there. All I know is some guy puts mud on my eyes. He tells me to go wash. I probably had nothing else to lose, so I did. (laughs) Went there. I'm out on my knees, and I'm I'm washing my face off. And all of a sudden, I blinked. (laughs) Very first time. Whoa! 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 Oh! (laughs) Ah, This is so cool! Is, Is this what it's like? Is this what seeing is like? And you can imagine this miracle was a talk of town. It, It was. The man had no explanation other than, I was blind, I met Jesus, and now I see. Neighbors, the religious community, his parents, everyone was in shock. But what's so interesting is that the Pharisees, the religious community, they were not happy for this guy. They were enraged. In verse 24, they had already questioned him. In John chapter 9, verse 24, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind. The Pharisees did this. And told him, God should get glory for this because we know Jesus is a sinner. you got to stop right there. Isn't that ironic? I, I mean, they thought, again, Jesus had violated the law and was a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath. But they got some of it right. God should get the glory for this. Nobody does these kinds of miracles. God alone can do this. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 25, the man standing there, looking, looking. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. They couldn't explain the miracle other than the fact that they went, or that this man Jesus touched his eyes everyone knew that God alone could do this it wasn't some tomfoolery or some trickery it was God that chose to manifest his power and authority and God got glory it it seems hard to understand all his life he had to go blind so that Jesus would do this yeah That's what Jesus said. John 11, and that's just a few pages over. You can go there. So many of you know this story. It's a classic story. The scriptures tell us that Jesus had quite a few friends, but he had some really, really close friends. And three of them were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus apparently got sick. And he got really sick. And Mary and Martha noticed that. And so they sent carrier pigeon or however word they could get to Jesus. And said, Jesus, we just want you to know Lazarus is really sick. Can you come? Can you come? Let me read chapter 11, starting in verse 3. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling them, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. And listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Wow, that just seems so odd to us. Yes, if you read the story, yes, he was raised from the dead in a miraculous way. But there were days of agony, days of watching him get sicker, days of... Well, eventually, a time when they saw him breathe his last breath and then embalm him and then put him in a tomb. And their hearts were broken and weary. And Jesus finally comes. And he gives them some words of comfort, but he says, You got to trust me. This is going to be amazing. And you can read it, but but Jesus does raise Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, what's so amazing, the people again gave God great glory because they knew he was dead. He already stunk in the grave. But as you continue reading the Gospels, you'll find out that Lazarus was a major player to be able to represent the resurrection of Jesus and is a God follower and the Pharisees even wanted Lazarus killed later on because of his testimony. God continued to receive honor and glory. And, and we wonder, we wonder about his timing. Couldn't God have gotten glory by, by just touching him and healing him, coming a little faster? But that's the question so, much, so many of us have. God, I think I know better than you. God, I think you should be here faster. Hey, God, you don't feel like you're around. Hey, God, how come I have the Red Sea and the mountains and the Egyptians behind me? I, I know you led me here, God, but was that a mistake? Did, did the cloud go differently or did I not really see that? Or, or God, why am I here? You know, one of the Psalms. It's an amazing psalm. Turn with me if you would to Psalm 77. You are going to relate to Asaph. Asaph, you probably don't know him, but this is a psalm written by Asaph. He is the worship leader. He's David's worship leader. He's one of David's worship leaders. In fact, He would be like Brendan writing a psalm. All right? So you can kind of picture Brendan writing the psalm. But maybe not. But let me begin to read this. This is going to give you wings. This is going to give you strength. In fact, this is a chapter I sit down and remind brothers and sisters over and over and over again that God is in control in spite of our feelings. So Asaph starts off, and he says this, I cry out to God. Yes, I shout. Oh, that God would listen to me. When I was in deep trouble, I searched for the Lord. All night long I prayed with my hands lifted up toward heaven, but my soul was not comforted. I think of God, and I moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. In other words, God, when are you going to show up? I've been praying to you. I've been talking to you. There's no relief in sight, he's saying. Verse 4, you don't let me sleep. I am too distressed even to pray. I think of the good old days long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I, I remember that, God. I search my soul and ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Can you imagine even the Israelites saying this, wondering, standing there, feeling like their life is going to come to an end? Look at verse 8. Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? We've come to this. We wonder, God, I don't feel like you're around. God, I don't think your word is applicable. Father, I don't even feel like praying, the psalmist writes. Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious as he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, This is my fate. The Most High has turned His hand against me. Oh, I encourage you to write in your Bibles because this next verse is worth circling. Verse 11, but, 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 then I recall all you have done, O Lord, I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They're constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. Oh God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations by your strong arm. Isn't that interesting? You redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Now look at what he uses as an illustration here. How cool. Verse 16, when the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain, and the thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one even knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep, with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. There are times we think God isn't there. And there are times our circumstances seem so desperate and the enemy is going to shout, "Uh uh-huh, told you, told you. God's not there. God doesn't care. It doesn't matter. Instead of saying, no, my God does know. I don't get it, but he's going to receive glory. I don't get it, but I'm going to be able to represent him in my neighborhood in my office, at school. I'm going to be able to do this. God, you're going to allow me to be able to mirror you to others. What a different perspective. You see, the Red Sea rule number one is that God directs our footsteps so he can display his glory oh it makes a big difference in our world if we believe that God has you even now in the right spot so be more concerned about God's glory than your relief let me pray Father, we all want relief. We all hate pain. We don't like it at all, God, that you feel distant. But Lord, you are faithful. You are faithful back to the Israelites, and you are faithful all the way through your scriptures. You have used story after story after story to show of your power and authority and your involvement in our lives. God, don't let the enemy steal our joy. Steal and make us worry. God, you are capable of walking and strengthening and encouraging. Lord, I love your word. I love how it teaches me that. I love God's people who remind me over and over. I love the small groups I'm in who remind me of your truth and strengthen me. Father, may we as a church recognize that nothing just happens. And even in the darkest of circumstances and situations, you are with us. You lead us. You guide us. And we say thank you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.